Idlewild Arts respectfully acknowledges the Kawishba Kawiyakna, also known as Kawiya Band of Indians, and all nine sovereign bands of Kawiya people who have stewarded this land throughout the generations and continue to steward this land for all future generations. Idlewild Arts Foundation is proud to present One World, One Idlewild, the series, in conversation with Pamela Jordan. The series brings together thought leaders, creatives, influencers, and changemakers, highlighting the work of citizen artists whose careers and lives have been shaped by the transformative power of art. Today, I'm speaking with Ravita Franklin Bowers, interim head of school at the Center for Early Education in Los Angeles, California. Ravita Franklin Bowers was born and educated in Los Angeles, California. She retired in 2016 from the Center for Early Education, where she served as head of school for over 40 years. Prior to her retirement from the center, Ravita was engaged for 15 consecutive summers as the lead faculty member at the National Association of Independent Schools Institute for New Heads, where she taught more than 700 newly appointed heads of schools. Ravita has served and continues to serve on a number of boards, including the Walt Disney Company, where she served as an outside director for 10 years. She has served as board chair for the Fulfillment Fund, the California Association of Independent Schools, the Educational Records Bureau, and the California Community Foundation. Recently, after 10 years of service on their board, Ravita retired as national chair of the Common Sense Media Board of Directors. She continues to serve on the boards of the Los Angeles Philharmonic as a corporate outside director of Activism Blizzard and most recently as a board member of the newly formed California Partners Project, an organization founded to concentrate on increasing the number of women on California corporate boards and focusing on issues facing California families. Ravita returned to the Center for Early Education on July 1, 2020 as interim head of school while the school searches for its next leader. Ravita Bowers, it is my absolute pleasure to speak with you today. I've known you for nearly 20 years and I still sit in awe and learn from you. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Pam. I've enjoyed our long association as well. So I'm really pleased to be here. I should mention that you have returned to the Center for Early Education to serve as interim head of school while they search for their next head. But you were head of school at the Center for 40 years before you retired in 2016. Is that right? That's correct. I'm, I know they're glad they could turn to you and have you serve in that interim position, especially now. You've had a remarkable career in education, yet I've heard you say that it was not your intention to be an educator. How did you find yourself in a school setting? Well, I'm the fourth generation teacher in my family. And so as I was going to college and graduate school, the last thing I wanted to be was the fourth teacher. My great-grandmother was a teacher, my grandmother, my mother and her two sisters were teachers. So I wanted to do something else. I wanted to go to law school. My husband was in law school. But I remembered what my mother had said, which in those days and from her generation was, you can always fall back on teaching. And so when I graduated from college and my husband was in law school, I had a marketing job at first working for a department store as a buyer and a marketer in Los Angeles called Bullock's Wilshire. 
and then decided I didn't like merchandising. So I went to the county superintendent's office and applied for a job as a teacher. And the superintendent of the county came out to interview me and looked at me and said, Ravita Franklin. It was my former second grade teacher. <laughs> it was hysterical. So he took me into his office, looked at my application and said, it's about time you came into teaching and gave me my first teaching assignment uh, at my former elementary school and then at another elementary school in South Central Los Angeles. And after my first about year and a half teaching in LA Unified, they furloughed all of us because it was the middle of the desegregation of the schools and the enrollment was dropping. So there weren't jobs for the people most recently hired. So is that how you found yourself uh, at an independent school? No, the assistant superintendent had been to visit my classroom several times. So when she heard that I had gotten a furlough notice, she gave me a card from the center and said, this is where my children go to school. In the middle of August, if they haven't had a job for you again, call and see if you can get on their sub list. So in mid-August, when they hadn't called us back, I called the school, got an immediate appointment, went in and talked to the founding head of the elementary school who offered me two jobs that day. One as a master teacher in the elementary school and one as a master teacher in the preschool. And I took the elementary job only because it paid twice as much as the <laughs> nursery school job. <laughs> and that's how I began my independent school career in teaching. Now, you you were head of school for, for 40 years. So how did you make the journey from the classroom to becoming a head of school? Well, in my fourth year as a teacher, the founding head of the elementary school decided she was going to go back to school and do uh, work to become a lay psychoanalyst. She had a PhD in curriculum from UCLA, wonderful mentor, brilliant woman, but she didn't like running a school. And so she said to me, one day you're gonna run this school. That's what she said to me after my first year. Well, the board launched a head search and I was actually on family leave having just given birth to my second child when I got a call from the board chair saying that they hadn't found candidates they like and would I be willing instead of coming back and returning as a kindergarten teacher, returning as the head of school for the elementary uh, school. And I was shocked, <clears throat> but I talked it over with my husband. I had already started applying to law schools and I thought, you know, I love the school. I have two young children. I have a three-week-old and a 17-month-old. I have so enjoyed the community of the school. Why don't I at least try this while my children are young? If I don't like it and I want to go to law school, I can always do that. 
But let me see if I can help this school that I'd come to really admire and respect and a board that I admired and respected deeply as well. So that's how it happened. And the rest they say is history, 40 years later. Now, now this is very interesting because when your children were young, you made the decision that they would not attend the school where you were head. Why did you and your husband make that decision and how was it received by your kids as well as your colleagues? Well, you know, my kids would have come in as nursery school kids, so they really had no say in the matter. They were going to go wherever I sent them. But I made the decision because as a young head, as a woman of color, you know, leading a primarily white school, I, I felt I needed some distance and some space and not have the the school become where I parented, as well as where I led teachers and children and families, that I was going to need some distance between my work life and my private life. So I informed the board that I was going to send my son when he hit kindergarten elsewhere. Um, and that's what I did with both my children and then became very, very active in their school because I was, I was, I thought it was important that I could be a working parent, a full-time working parent, and also be a model of involvement in a different school for my children. So I was the parent association president in their school. That is such a wonderful example. I don't have children, but of course I know many female heads of school who really do struggle with those kinds of decisions. Um, there are hundreds if not thousands of educational leaders who would point to you as a mentor or an influence in their lives. What makes you want to give back, particularly to emerging leaders? Well, you know, I found myself as a young, inexperienced, really skillless uh, young head of school because I learned on the job. I was given an extraordinary opportunity by a wonderful board who had faith that I could do the job, but I wasn't sure. But I learned so much in those early years and came to love the job, the people, the place, the mission, the opportunities. And I think when you find work that fulfills you, you wanna share that fulfillment and that joy in going to work with other people who are interested in the same career path. I had a lot of hard stuff to do and a lot of hard stuff to learn over that 40 years. But I don't think no matter how hard my day was on any, any given day, I regretted being there or being present in the life of the school. That was really important to me. So I wanted to share that with other young leaders and say, even if you don't have all the experience you think you need, because I learned something new every day and every year added to my sort of briefcase of professional skills that I could call upon to run the school. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. 
Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code ONEWORLD2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts giving to make a gift today. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Ravita Franklin Bowers, Interim Head of School at the Center for Early Education in Los Angeles, California. Now, I happen to know that you are quite a pianist. What role has art and music played in your life? Well, you have to remember that I grew up in a family of musicians. Everybody learned to play an instrument. My grandmother was a music teacher. Her oldest daughter, my mother's older sister, was a music teacher as well. So growing up in Los Angeles, I spent my summers at the Hollywood Bowl. I went to the concerts for youth that the LA Philharmonic did in the old Shrine Auditorium. Music was a part of our lives. And because we lived eventually in a large enough home and knew so many professional musicians, the musicians that came to town that played on Central Avenue, played in the jazz houses, played in the clubs in Los Angeles, came to our house to rehearse and to do jam sessions when they were unemployed. So I was always surrounded by professional musicians who were very successful and some who just needed a meal and the opportunity to play their instruments. So I played the piano and I played when I was very young, the cello, but I stuck with the piano because my grandmother who was my music teacher realized after two or three years that I was playing exclusively by ear. And she finally <laughs> said to me, listen, I could teach you to read music, but you're doing really well playing by ear. So why don't you just keep doing it? Because you seem to spend more time playing the piano than either one of my other grandchildren who learned to read me read music, have learned to read, and are very proficient on their instruments. So I actually got kicked out of music lessons. <laughs> But I found over the years that when I have stress, I always turn to the piano. You know, I either bake or play the piano. And I go back to my piano over and over again. And I've probably consistently enjoyed playing music more than either of my relatives who were far more proficient musicians than I was. In an interview you did with Private Schools Village founder, Lisa Johnson, you said profound experiences change the fabric of a school. 
In what ways do you think schools will change in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, the global health pandemic, and the civil unrest we're seeing unfold in our nation? Well, you know, every school, whether it's explicitly stated or stated in their mission, should be inspiring people to be lifelong learners. And these profound experiences shape not only our lifelong learning experiences, but the direction of our lives. These are moments that we can point to that have taught us so much more than we ever could have learned reading history or just going about our day-to-day -day lives. And because they've been so impactful and so widespread in their impact, in their influence, in our daily lives and our daily experience, it shaped our lived experience, which is the most profound way to experience and incorporate change. And so they become the kind of meaningful learning experiences that turn us around, smack us in the face, and help us to not be so introspective that we don't look at the lives of others and also share our perspectives and listen to the lived experiences of other people. And the telling of stories in these times has become profoundly important. And I think that's what schools are going to learn. As well, you know, remote learning and teaching remotely in the midst of COVID have taught us that there are different ways and deeper ways in some cases to engage with families, school community members, students, and other educators across the country. And I think we're going to learn things that will improve the delivery of instruction, even when we're back in person. When you were appointed head of school at the Center for Early Education, you were one of only a handful of heads of color in the country, is that right? That's correct. And I'm assuming that your school was predominantly white at the time, but I believe that it is quite diverse today. What are the demographics for the uh, Center for Early Education today or, or when you retired? Well, today, since I'm back here today, we're 51 students of color and 35% uh, faculty, staff, and administrators of color. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a bit of work. Um, I, I, heard, I heard you once refer to a story uh, where a student, a three-year-old in your school used the N-word. Would you share that story and tell us what it taught you? Sure. So our school spans the ages of toddler through sixth grade. And our nursery school, when we were first starting out, was on the first floor of the building. The elementary school and the administrative offices were on the second floor. And my office actually overlooked the preschool playground. And one day I got a call from a teacher who called me down and said, you won't believe what's happened on the playground. Please come down, I need your help. So I went downstairs and the teacher said, you won't believe what happened on the bike path. These two children were on tricycles. Now we're talking about three-year-olds. These two ch children were on tricycles and they ran into each other 
And immediately the child who fell over called the other child the N-word. And I looked at her and I said, can you point out who the two children were? And she turned to this blonde haired little boy and this bright red haired little boy with green eyes, both of whom were white. And I said, are you kidding? And she said, no. So I took two boys up to my office and I said, we're gonna go upstairs and you're gonna have a talk with Ravita, okay? About something that happened. And I understand you had uh, an accident on the bike path. So I took them upstairs and asked them to repeat the story. And they repeated the story of how they had run into each other and how one had gotten a skinned knee and called the other the N-word. And I said to them, can you explain to me what the N-word means? And he just beamed. He had this big smile on his face. And he looked at me and he said, it's a bad driver. And I said, tell me how you know the N-word is a bad driver. He said, because my dad was driving the other day and I was in the back seat and he almost had an accident in the car. And he yelled out the window, you N-word, watch where you're driving. And so I said, thank you so much. I said, but you know, the N-word is not a bad driver and it's not a word you ever want to use to someone else. And so I'm going to call your dad since he learned that word from you. And when you get home today, I bet you he will have a conversation with you about the N-word and about how he's learned that it's a word that he shouldn't use either. And so I took the opportunity to call the father who of course was mortified. Uh, and I said, you know, sometimes as role models for our children in the heat of the moment, we make mistakes. We make mistakes in the classroom as teachers, but we have what are called teachable moments when we need to go back and we be, need to be able to tell children of all ages that we made a mistake and that we were wrong. I hope you'll take this opportunity to teach your child. And I shared that part of the story with the other family as well. And I shared it with the faculty and staff because one of the most important things for children to learn is that as their educators, and as their administrators, we make mistakes. That's how we learn. And sometimes we have epic failures that we need to correct, but we also need to own them so that as children don't learn evenly and don't learn successfully at times, they understand that it's okay to make a mistake or to fail at something. And that when we as adults make a mistake and fail at something, we have to be able to admit that also and correct it. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Ravita Franklin Bowers, Interim Head of School at the Center for Early Education in Los Angeles, California. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity 
and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts/giving to make a gift today. Now I'm going to shift a bit uh, uh, because I I know uh, your background in this way. You've been in Los Angeles, California, all of your life, but nearly a century ago, your family relocated to Los Angeles from Tulsa, Oklahoma, following the Tulsa riot of 1921. For our listeners who may not know about this atrocity, the Tulsa riot is more accurately known as the Black Wall Street Massacre and is considered the worst race riot in the history of the United States. Now, many people are only recently learning of this event because there was great effort to cover up the fact that it ever happened. Can you tell us a bit about what life would have been like in Greenwood, Oklahoma, the area known as Black Wall Street? My grandmother and grandfather moved to Tulsa from North Carolina, actually, when they heard that Tulsa had land in the Greenwood suburb, which was a suburb of Tulsa, where Black families from all over the country, and particularly educated and professional couples and families, were moving to start a community of their own. And so they moved when my mother was a baby, actually. And my aunt, my mother was the middle child of three. In 1921, my mother was about to celebrate her sixth birthday. Um, her Her grandparents were moving to Tulsa the week before her birthday, her sixth birthday, because they were coming to build a house behind my grandparents' homes. My grandparents, when they arrived in Tulsa, had opened a photography studio. My grandmother opened a music school and also the first preschool in Tulsa. And so they had formed parts of the professional community. And my grandmother's brother had moved to Tulsa to be one of the staff doctors in the black owned hospital. It was the most prosperous black community in 1921. There was an incident that occurred. They had their own movie theaters, their own banks, their own business community, their own school system, their own police and fire departments. I mean, it was a really thriving community in 1921, Oklahoma. There was a lot of anger in the white community that lived in Tulsa, many of whom were in the agricultural community and before the thriving gas community had really gotten off it to a good start. And there was a lot of jealousy in the community. And there was a story about a young boy who was a shoe shine in downtown Tulsa. He worked outside an office building and he would always go to use the bathroom in the building. And from what I remember of the story, he went into the, the office building one day and was in the elevator with a young white girl who was the elevator operator. 
According to him, the elevator lurched and he bumped into the girl. And afterwards, it was reported that he had put a hand on the young woman in the elevator. She later recanted that story, but not before it spread like wildfire and the young boy was taken into police custody in Tulsa. He was taken into police custody and when word of his arrest spread throughout the black community, they formed together as a group and demanded that he be released into their custody rather than be kept incarcerated until there was a hearing. He was taken back, I understand, to his home in Greenwood and later word spread the that night and that day among the Tulsa community and there began a race riot. It was interesting the next day. My great grandparents arrived with their trunks that night and were stored in the hallway of my grandparents' homes. So when the mob started burning down businesses, taking black men into custody, started uh, burning down individual homes and driving people in groups into the street. The only thing my grandparents were able to pull out of any of their businesses or their home were the trunks that were in the front hallway that my grandparents had brought the night before. So over the three days of the riot, according to the, the history that was recorded in the community at that time, over 300 black people from the Greenwood community were killed, shot or lynched. And most of the community was burned to the ground. The black men were herded together into the fairgrounds and held at gunpoint for several days. And the women were herded into other parts of the community with the children uh, to try and retrieve what they could from the businesses and the homes that were less standing. They were actually, the community was actually bombed. And it's the first time on American soil that Americans have bombed other Americans in the history of the country. And so it was kept out of the history books in the state of Oklahoma until a very enlightened governor in the early 2000s insisted that it be written and taught in the state of Oklahoma. It was known about and taught in other history in other parts of the country, but very little was known. And it's been the inspiration for hearings before Congress and also other documentaries and television series in the last few years. One of the things I heard, they had a, a news uh, paper article um, that was immediately removed from the archives and it was one of the things that helped incite it. But immediately afterward, you couldn't even find the press that had been there. So there was a, a concerted effort to really cover it up. How did your family talk about it um, when you were growing up? Well, you know what? 
My mother and her sisters, my grandfather, my uncle, my grandmother, and their parents actually stayed to help rebuild Oklahoma. My mother and my father didn't actually move out of Tulsa and out of Oklahoma until they moved during World War II to Los Angeles. So many of their friends who visited Los Angeles and in our homes, we always heard the story of the race riots, but we also heard the story about the good people who came and helped the community try to rebuild. And they were people of different ethnicities and people who came from other parts of the state. John Hope Franklin, the revered historian who taught at Harvard was one of the people in the early 2000s who testified before Congress about the race riots because he felt it was so important that the story be in the National Archives. So over time, I grew up in a household where the stories were repeated, but also the stories of all the other people who came into our home of all nationalities and all races, because it wasn't just the black musicians who were welcomed into our home. My father owned a grocery store. And so musicians of all kinds who were down on their luck or people who were down on their luck knew there was always a pot of something cooking on the stove that they could have as a meal when they came over. You've seen so much in your career and in your life. What words of encouragement do you have for students today who are navigating issues of diversity and inclusion, isolation due to the global health pandemic, and so much more? I think the first thing I would tell them is your lived experience is important. Share it. Don't feel in any setting that you're in that your experience doesn't matter and that what you have lived through in your lifetime isn't valuable. It's a valuable teaching lesson for you, but also for others. Be determined to get the most you can from every opportunity and where you don't see opportunities, ask for them. I think that's critically important. Look for mentors and advocates in your life people who can help open doors or help you find opportunities to share your lived experience and to share school and educational opportunities with you that perhaps you don't know about and wouldn't know about in your present circumstances. And lastly, once you've achieved what you hope to achieve with your educational goals, with your personal goals, with your life goals, then you have an obligation to turn around and mentor someone else and do something for the next generation of kids. It's critically important that we open doors for others. I think most of our listeners have heard of the notorious RBG, <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I wanna say we have been listening to the notorious RFB. Ravita Franklin Bowers, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Stay safe and good luck on the remainder of the year. 
and you too, Pam. Good luck to you and all the wonderful things you're doing on behalf of your school. My guest today was Ravita Franklin Bowers, interim head of school at the Center for Early Education in Los Angeles, California. I spoke with Ravita via Zoom on January 15th, 2021. We'll be right back with my next guest, Lamenta Sky, a senior in the music department at Idlewild Arts Academy and co-founder of the school's Black Student Union. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts giving to make a gift today. This is One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. Today I'm speaking with Lamenta Sky, a young singer-songwriter and a four-year senior at Idlewild Arts Academy. Aminta aspires to become a professional working artist, a dream she has been pursuing since she was eight years old. Aminta's indie style utilizes heartfelt instrumentation and thoughtful lyrics with the goal of leaving a mark on the listener. She is notable in the Idlewild community for her dedication to justice and solution. She is a founder of Idlewild Arts Academy's first Black Student Union and still serves as president. She also currently serves as president of the school's Environmental Club, the Sunrise Chapter, and she is the 2021 class president. Amenta, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Now, your family is from Senegal, but you grew up in the United States. You were born in the United States. Tell me that story. Right. So I actually have quite a large family, which is pretty normal for West Africans. So unlike many of my siblings, I was born in the United States. My mom was pretty sick when she was pregnant with me. So she traveled back here to be with friends and kind of get better. Um, And then we you know, split our time between Senegal and the U.S. for a bit and eventually settled here right before I started school when I was around five. And in the U.S., we have six siblings in my family. So I'm the youngest of those. And then my father still lives in Senegal and I have a lot of siblings and nieces and nephews there. And then, you know, the family over here and aunties. So we're everywhere, but yeah. (laughs) So, uh, You're 18 years old now, but you embraced art at a very young age. With such a big family, uh, (laughs) was art and music a part of your life growing up? Is it in your family? Yeah, um, 
I actually did not know this about my father. We're not extremely, extremely close, but he is apparently a really big musician and that's kind of what he does and makes instruments and plays guitar and drums. So that's cool. Um, I think my mom felt like it was important for all of us to have this connection to art and she really encouraged us to learn how to play instruments and take dance lessons and things like that. But are there many musicians in my family? I think we're all becoming more musical. But when I was younger, it's definitely all the boys play football or sorry, soccer (laughs) and all the girls dance and stuff like that. So I kind of went my own way. But yeah, since quarantine, especially, we're all really picking up instruments and (laughs) figuring stuff out. My older brother's an incredible guitarist and I have a sister. A few of my sisters are all of them amazing singers. So it's really nice now to be able to make music with them and kind of share that in a different way. Well, you, uh, I've heard you speak, you gave a TED talk in 2019. And there I learned that you left public school and moved to online schooling. Why did you ask your your parents, why did you ask your mom to support that decision? Yes, um, that is true. (laughs) When I was in, well, okay, let's rewind here. I have always kind of had this life plan for myself since I was a young child. And I've always wanted to be a singer. That's never, ever changed. And so I kind of sat down and said, okay, how am I going to get from here to there? And this was my plan. Take eighth grade off so that I can really focus on music and, you know, advance in that year so that I can get into an arts high school because I, you know, there's so much to learn. And I just was really excited to kind of get a head start on that. And I think especially in the music industry and in performance arts in general, people really value um, young people having more experience or you're kind of expected to be, you know, at your peak when you're 22 or something. And that's really unthinkable for many professions. So I was excited to get a head start on that. And then after arts high school, either just be, I I don't know, be signed immediately. I guess I thought that that was just going to happen or go to college and kind of work on releasing my music independently in that route. So I took eighth grade online. Like I said, I got entitled arts, thankfully, and I've been able to have arts education in high school here. And then the next step is college. So the plan's working so far, but um, online school was not, all that I thought it would be. I learned that I have ADHD that year. So focusing and doing hours of school in a house alone when everyone's at work or at school, um, no one really to ask questions to, that was very, very difficult. Honestly, kind of a blur, but I think there are a lot of things that I learned that year, especially about self-motivation and self-determination and um, time management, there, there were a lot of valuable lessons that year that I've been able to carry with me at Adult Arts and online this year as well. You were chosen to perform at the inaugural event hosted by the California State Society in honor of Vice President Kamala Harris. You sang an original song titled, Ivory is Normalcy. I'd like to play a bit of that song right now for our listeners.
I've listened to this song many times and I love the lyrics. One line in particular says, your beauty is decided by your community, but nobody up there looks like me. Ivory is normalcy. I just love the lyrics. What experiences in your life led you to pen those words? Well, I think there are definitely, you know, privileges of being a light-skinned black woman in the United States. And there's a certain, you know, experience that I recognize I'll never understand that darker skinned women have to go through. And also there is a unique set of problems that come with being mixed in the U.S. and kind of figuring out where you fit in, what's your identity. And a lot of times we face not so much acceptance from this side and not so much acceptance from that side. Um, And especially being African as well, it's interesting to be kind of treated equally as a Black American in regards to systematic oppression or society and day-to-day microaggressions, but also not have the history or direct lineage as my friends whose, you know, parents were Black Panthers, whose grandparents were, you know, organizers with MLK and that kind of direct, um, literally genetic connection to enslavement and all these things that add to the Black American experience and kind of not knowing where I fit, I think. So that song for me was really about just the lack of representation that I experienced growing up and how that really affected my identity, especially moving from a majority Black nation such as Senegal to Oregon, where there are really, really no Black people in Oregon. We are rare. Like everyone I knew who was Black was my family or two other families, and we knew each other, like, you know, just kind of that thing. And especially living with a single mom who is white, there was a lot of, you know, I'm young and you kind of, you put your standard of beauty or perfect beauty as your mom when you're a little child. So I'm like, why don't I have blue eyes like my mom? Why don't I have long blonde hair like my mom? And, you know, I'd cry because I didn't have straight hair. And then going to school and kids asking me, why are you brown? Why do you curl your hair every every morning which you know we don't but they couldn't believe that so when did you get adopted like you know all of those kind of things that are pretty damaging to a kid and then you're looking for people to look up to because you're not seeing anyone directly around you and all of the singers you listen to are white all of the Disney princesses that you see are white I remember being on the playground and all the girls are choosing who their princesses are. And then they look at me and say, we don't really know what you are. So you're just going to be Pocahontas. And I'm, I'm sitting here like educated about, you know, Native American oppression. And I'm like, Pocahontas isn't even Pocahontas. Like, what are you talking about? So that was frustrating. And I think pretty damaging for me, at least. So just that song for me was really cathartic to kind of address that unspoken sense of Eurocentric beauty standards and even things that people really don't think about like they were talking about on television the other day the perfect angle of the nose is this type of thing that like directly aligns with European features and all the black people on the screen are looking at each other like what is going on um and I'm really excited to see that that is really changing especially with the first black female 
and the first Asian American vice president. That's incredible. But even just movies such as Black Panther, you know, I babysit my little cousin and there's shows like Motown Magic or, you know, Octonauts, like all these shows, Dr. McStuffins that have black characters as main characters and seeing how excited she gets or seeing, you know, my younger cousins watch Black Panther for the first time or Miles Morales be Spider-Man and they've never seen a black person be a superhero and it's like someone they can really claim. So I'm excited that that's changing. Um, and I think that, you know, is part of why it felt like the right time to make that song now. If you're just joining us, today I'm speaking with Amenta Sky, a young singer-songwriter and a four-year senior at Idlewell Arts Academy. In your junior year at Idlewell Arts, you co-founded the Black Student Union with then-student Mbuya Letahele. And I've watched the BSU flourish, changing hearts and minds, policies and practices of many, including myself. What did you want to bring to Idlewell Arts by starting the BSU? I honestly, the BSU is like my child. If no, if no one remembers anything about me in five years after I've graduated, my one hope is that BSU is still around and thriving and growing. Um, it means so much to me. And especially coming into Idlewild when I was a freshman in this new community I've never been in, I've never lived in California. And I was the only black student in the music department. Like the one of four black students in my dorm. Like I really didn't see um, black people in general, but especially community or a space where black people were coming together and having support and, you know, community and especially because so many black people, especially black Americans don't have access to therapy or aren't encouraged to go to therapy. There's something so special about being in a room of people who look like you and you don't need to explain so many little things about culture or your behavior and just, you know, immediate understanding of a lot of those basic things. And just being able to talk about your experience and really be heard and not have to wonder if they're going to take you as like the angry black girl stereotype or get defensive about something you know, you're feeling. I think that's really powerful. So it was really important for me to create a black space on campus. And it was very surprising to me. Well, one, BSUs are so, so common. I've actually never been to a high school or seen a high school in my area where there wasn't a black student union. So I was kind of surprised. But I was very surprised once we actually formed to see how really negative the reaction was from the community around us. I remember before we got a room, we would all sit at one table in the dining hall and people were losing their minds. <laughs> Students would walk by us and get so scared and start, you know, fast walking past the table and looking back and being really confused. Um, and people were calling us self-segregating people were very upset and you know we did have to make that difficult decision Buya and I about whether or not we wanted to have everyone be welcome to the black student union or just make it a black space and ultimately we felt like it was really important to just have a black space on campus and there's really nowhere else where we are not the minority where we are on campus so similar to the Jew crew similar to the Chinese only club 
it's important to have those spaces where you can be with people who understand the experience you're going through and how many how many things we talked about that I didn't realize other black students were were experiencing like oh my gosh that teacher said that thing to you too like oh maybe that's something we should address with her or or um, that student you know said this horrible horrible thing to you do you want us to talk to him or do you want us to all go to Alan together and support you how you need to kind of deal with this how do you want to go about it or just, you know, even if people don't don't necessarily want to confront someone who's calling them something racist, it is still really powerful to have someone who knows how that feels because that word has been used against them um, to just vibe and just know, you know, and have that support is really powerful. And we actually do a lot of community outreach. We did multiple PSAs. We did to kind of, you know, help people it's confusing and we're all learning how to be more respectful to different cultures and be better allies to each other so explaining you may have heard that black women don't really like their hair to be touched why is that let's talk about it and questions people are uncomfortable asking we hosted community talks where people could anonymously ask us questions and panels where we would have dialogue and discussion with students and faculty um, and we're excited when COVID's over, we're planning some block parties and just fun, everyone's invited type of thing. So I'm really excited for how much BSU has grown. And it is so, you know, unexplainably powerful for me. I can't even put it into words when new Black students say, this is the highlight of my week. Or coming, even online, coming onto this Zoom call, this is the only Zoom call I've ever been on where every every face is brown right now. And emotionally, like, that is powerful to me. Or thank you for creating this, you know, safe Black space. That is all I've ever wanted from BSU. So I'm so, so excited and proud of that. That's wonderful. You certainly have accomplished that. It makes me uh, think of the, the book by Dr. Beverly Tatum. Why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? Um, so many uh, African-American students, students of color, just have that experience where you literally asked that question. I thought that book was so well uh, titled um, for that. And I know that um, the BSU will be around uh, for many, many years to come. And you should be very proud of that. There's no doubt in my mind. I too have thought about uh, when I arrived at Idlewild Arts seven years ago, um, it was interesting that there wasn't anything like that, but it's not something that can happen top down. It really has to be the voice of the students and authentic to that experience. And you all have certainly done that and you continue to be the president today and you're leaving it in good hands. So I want to thank you for that and thank you for, for being a part of that. So you've mapped out your life. And, and you're on track. <laughs> we just have to get you that contract by the time you're 22. <laughs> you're graduating this year. What What are your plans now? Where are you going? Um, I was so lucky to actually receive a full ride to the University of Southern California, which was my top choice, where I will be majoring in music performance with an emphasis in songwriting. So I'm very, very, very excited. And Lexi Warnock, if you remember, she graduated a few years ago and is one of my best friends. She goes there, so I'm gonna see her and I'm very, very excited about that. That That's really wonderful. I can't wait to see how your music continues to evolve and 
I know that lyrics will continue to be such a powerful part of your songwriting. And I'll be looking for you and wishing you all the best and will be so very proud to call you an alumna of Idlewild Arts. Aminta Sky, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Pam. Have a beautiful day. You too. My guest today was Aminta Sky, a young singer-songwriter and a four-year senior at Idlewild Arts Academy. I spoke with Aminta via Zoom on January 24th, 2021. As we leave, we are listening to a song Aminta composed about turning 18 years old. You've been listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. We at Idlewild Arts have always believed that art is the greatest teacher of humanity. We continue to believe that the practice of creativity hones a person's desire and ability to affect global change. My name is Pamela Jordan. To learn more about the Academy and its world-renowned summer program, please visit idlewildarts.org. To subscribe to the One World, One Idlewild podcast, please visit idlewildarts.org slash the series. Join me next time when my guests are Trung Lee and Sam Charltain, founders of 180 Studio. I speak with Lee and Sam about their latest venture, Seed and Spark, that uses nature as a model to reimagine the future of school. I will also speak with Idlewild Arts student, Sedona Sky Duffy, about growing up in Bermuda, her passion for equity and justice, and her dream to one day perform in London's West End Theater District. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, a creation and production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Executive produced by me, Pamela Jordan. Directed and produced by Rose Colella. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Justin Holmes. Graphic design by Mark Biley. Marketing and publicity by Wendy Winks. Marketing assistance by Rose Colella, Andrew Edwards, and Nick Ryan. Production and research assistance by Keith Miller. Creative consultation by Palencia Turner. Production support by Marianne Kentstoll. Technical support by John Lawrence, Michael Quick, and Tom Wadbrook. Our theme song is Beaconing. It was composed and performed by the incomparable Marshall Hawkins. Pamela Jordan was appointed president of Idlewild Arts Foundation in 2014. Prior to this position, she held the distinction of being the first female and first African-American head of school of the Chicago Academy for the Arts, where she held the position for 12 years. She currently serves on the boards of the California Association of Independent Schools, the Association of Boarding Schools, and Art Schools Network, and is on the Global Education Advisory Council for Shanghai Huer Collegiate School Kanshan. One World, One Idlewild, the series, is a product of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Any use of materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of Idlewild Arts Foundation, is strictly prohibited. <laughs>